In 330 BC, Alexander the Great finished conquering the Persian Empire, but only seven years later he died and his kingdom fractured. Among Alexander's successors was Cassander, one of Alexander's former officers, who took control of the regions of Macedonia and Greece. One of Cassander's friends was a Greek writer named Euhemerus. Traveling at Cassander's request, Euhemerus went to the Arabian Peninsula, boarded a ship, and headed south. After some time at sea, he came to a group of islands, including one named Panchia. Euhemerus records details about the island, the people who lived on it, and about a high hill with a temple. Euhemerus describes the temple and its grounds, and then he writes about a golden pillar that stood inside. Engraved on this pillar were a number of inscriptions telling stories. Stories of things done by Uranus, the sky god, Cronus, the king of the titans, and Zeus, the king of the gods. The curious thing is not that there are inscriptions telling about Greek gods. It's what the inscriptions say. The stories told of a time when Uranus was a king, the first king. He ruled well and studied the stars. Uranus, it said, was the first to make sacrifices to the gods. The stories went on to describe how Uranus and his wife had two sons and two daughters, including Cronus and Rhea. Cronus and Rhea then had children of their own, including Zeus. Zeus grew up to become king, fought battles, and though he was a human, he came to be considered a god. When Zeus came back home to the island of Panchia, he made an altar to Uranus, his grandfather. Zeus made laws, acted as a judge, promoted people who came up with useful ideas, and he ordered people to worship him as a god too, before he died and was buried on the island of Crete. In short, Euhemerus claims that this golden pillar inside a temple on this island south of Arabia says that the Greek gods were originally men. Euhemerus's story about the island and the temple and the pillar was probably an imaginary trip. It was a story used to present the idea that the gods of Greek history were just humans so impressive they came to be revered as gods. The trip might be fiction, but Euhemerism, the theory based on Euhemerus's story that the gods of mythology are foggy memories of real people, is still around today. Think about that. If the myths and legends we remember today were once real stories about real people, then maybe, buried inside them, there might still be a grain of truth, a little piece of history. With that in mind, this episode isn't so much one story about a person or a small family, like you have with Noah and the Ark. Instead, it's about an extended family. All of them are descendants of Noah's son, Ham, the 10th chapter of Genesis has a list, and we can trace where they went and some of the histories they took with them. And I want to start with the people who didn't go anywhere when everyone else left. The people who stayed at Babel, a city later known as Babylon. In the last episode, I talked about the plain between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, where people built the Tower of Babel. God confused the languages, and many people left that area to migrate and settle further away. 
But that river plain was still a good place to live. It had fresh water, room to grow food and raise cattle. And Genesis says that the ruler of Babel was a man known as Nimrod. I should add a disclaimer here. We know very little about Nimrod. And we've known so little for such a long time that a lot of stories, ideas, speculation, and probably some mythology has built up around him. In researching all of this, I went through a number of sources, and while some of it might be true, a lot probably isn't. So you have to do a bit of filtering to make a best guess about Nimrod. That said, let's start with what we do know. In Genesis, it describes Nimrod as a descendant of Ham, possibly a grandson, maybe further away than that. And it says Nimrod became a, quote, mighty man, end quote, and a, quote, mighty hunter before the Lord, end quote. All of that sounds like a compliment, but that's not the general impression. Instead, given other references in the Bible to a hunter as someone who searches for people so he can persecute and oppress them, there's some suspicion that Nimrod the hunter may mean something more like Nimrod the tyrant. And scholars paint this image of Nimrod as someone who attempted to conquer and control those around him. His name, Nimrod, might mean to rebel or he rebelled or even, we shall rebel. Jewish tradition describes him as someone who murdered innocent men. And the phrase, before the Lord, that can mean someone talented and capable, or it can be translated as, in the face of God. One scholar thinks of it as Nimrod rebelling publicly, without any fear of God, while another has him telling people to abandon God's rules and follow Nimrod's rules instead. I mentioned Nimrod in the last episode, and Josephus claims that it was Nimrod who encouraged people to build the Tower of Babel. That may be the case, we don't know. What we do know is that Nimrod became a king, perhaps history's first king. And Genesis says that he came to control four cities, all of them probably nearby. Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna. That's the background from Genesis, but... For a long time, we didn't know much else about their history because, well, reading what ancient Babylonians wrote is tricky. Pardon the history lesson for a moment, but I want to give some background. 4,000 years ago, the people who lived in the region around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers wrote things down on clay tablets. There's pros and cons to this. Clay tablets are heavy and brittle, but like anything else made of clay, they have the useful feature of turning into something tough and durable when heated to high temperatures. You can do this by baking them in a kiln, or, in the case of a war, setting a city on fire. That turns the whole town into a kiln, firing the clay tablets stored in one place or another within the city, and making the writing on them permanent. Or at least permanent enough to survive the last four millennia. So far, archaeologists have found over 500,000 of these tablets. The problem is reading what's written on them. Instead of using letters and writing by drawing lines, these tablets are written with symbols made by stamping a wedge-shaped stylus into the wet clay. Overlapping these triangular impressions in various ways built up symbols that are today referred to as cuneiform, meaning wedge-shaped. Scholars had piles of these tablets covered in indecipherable symbols. Figuring out the translation was next. To do that, we turn to Henry Rawlinson, a British employee of the East India Company. Rawlinson was in his 20s when he was sent to Iran in 1833, where he began to try to decode this forgotten language. 
He used a variety of sources, though the most famous was the Besitun inscription. This message was carved 300 feet up on a cliff face in a pass of the Zagros Mountains, and it was engraved by Darius the Great, a king of the Persian Empire. In general, the inscription talks about Darius's accomplishments, a standard practice for kings. But helpfully, Darius was so anxious that everyone be able to read his message that he wrote the same thing in three different languages. One of the languages was Old Persian. Rawlinson compared that inscription with the oldest known Persian dialect still in use, and he was eventually able to work out a translation. From there, the other two languages, Elamite and Akkadian, found in the parallel inscriptions, were also decoded. I want to emphasize here that this is a gross oversimplification. Personally, I can't fathom how we got from mysterious impressions pressed into baked clay tablets and symbols carved on a cliff face to the grammar and vocabulary and stories scholars have come to understand. But we have. And this brings me to one of the interesting things we've discovered about cuneiform. The language was complicated. The symbols these writers used weren't phonetic letters as we have today, letters that represent sounds. Instead, the symbols stood for either syllables or for entire words. And the grammar, well, it might not be something you'd want to learn. Modern English has three main cases of a noun. Think of I, me, mine. In comparison, the earliest language found written in cuneiform symbols has 10 different cases. And that's the earliest version. This isn't what you'd expect from nomadic hunter-gatherers. It doesn't fit the image of cavemen. The writing wasn't the invention of simple people making a simple language. It was the invention of an intelligent and capable society. People living right after the flood may have had less technology than we do today, but they were at least as smart as we are. The words and grammar we use today are child's play by comparison. The good news is that we're still smart enough to unlock these forgotten languages. And by unearthing tablets, piecing broken chunks back together, decoding the symbols and tenses and verbs, and finally translating what they say. Now we can begin to understand what the people who lived in the region around the Tigris and Euphrates, the people scholars call the Sumerians and later the Babylonians, we can finally read what they wrote. And some of the stories they tell are fascinating. The Sumerians remembered a time when the whole world was a sea, and a god made man and beasts, and declared their names good. They also told of Adapa, a man who was responsible for all nouns of human speech. Compare that with Genesis, describing God creating the world and calling it good, and the story of Adam giving names to all the newly created animals. If you follow the Sumerian legend further, Adapa's god lies to him and tricks him into not eating the bread of life or drinking the water of life to stop Adapa from becoming immortal. Elsewhere, the Babylonians left behind a tablet that tells of a command given in the garden of the god, and people sinning by exalting themselves, eating from the Asnan tree and destroying it, and taking in the sweet juice that injured their bodies. Archaeologists have also found a cylinder seal, something that would have been rolled across wet clay to make an impression, and it's engraved with the image of a male and female character sitting down and reaching for pieces of fruit hanging off a tree that grows between them, while a snake stands behind the woman. 
But it's not just stories that parallel Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit. You also find the flood. A while back, I talked about the Sumerian kings list and the similarities between it and the lifespans listed in Genesis for Adam's descendants. But I skipped another detail there. The Sumerian kings list names eight kings. Some versions have ten. But then, at the end of the section, it adds the ominous line, Then the flood swept over. Beyond this statement is a heavily damaged tablet translated in the early 1900s. This artifact describes someone sending a flood that will overthrow and bring disaster and silence. It refers to building a great ship to save life, and that the ship is required to have a strong cover and be filled with animals. Another story, this one quite famous, follows the adventures of the fifth king of Eric, a part god, part man, named Gilgamesh. This story, initially discovered in the 1800s, covers 11 or 12 clay tablets, and tells of various gods and battles and adventures. The really interesting part of the epic, though, is when Gilgamesh starts to worry about his own death, and decides to visit a man who lived through a great flood, and was made immortal by the gods. Gilgamesh travels to where scorpion men guard the gate to a tunnel. They let him through, and he comes to a fantastical garden, and eventually to the man he's looking for, named Utnapishtim. This is the man who lived through the flood. Utnapishtim tells Gilgamesh the story of a god who told him to build a boat and put a roof on it. Utnapishtim obeyed, then loaded the boat with treasure, animals, and people. There's a flood, the flood ends, and he sends out a dove, then a swallow, then a raven. Finally, he leaves the boat and offers a sacrifice to the gods. See any parallels? Any surprising coincidences? A global flood, a man who lived through it, sending out birds to check the water level, offering a sacrifice afterward? It makes you wonder if Gilgamesh's story, despite all the mythology woven into it, is based on something historic. Some people suggest that Gilgamesh was another name, or the name, for Nimrod, which may or may not be true. Regardless of the specifics, Gilgamesh's adventure could be the memory of a king who lived soon enough after the flood that Noah was still alive, and you could travel to where he lived and visit with him and hear the story of the flood firsthand. And if you're living right after the flood, a period in history when men's lifespans were decreasing from nearly a thousand years toward the 80 or so years we expect today, it wouldn't be hard to see Noah, a man over 700 years old, as someone immortal. And if you look further, the rainbow appears in their stories too, with the mention of a goddess seeing mighty arches so she would never forget. And if you keep looking at the history after the flood, there's also a curious reference to an ancient tower. Around 600 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, a king of a new Babylonian empire that ruled the region, wrote of restoring a tower. He says it was very old and used to stand 60 feet tall, but it had never been completed and was, in his day, broken down and ruined. These legends aren't the same as the story in Genesis, but you see odd places where things match up, details that look like fuzzy memories of the same history. After Babylon, Nimrod went upriver along the Tigris into the land of Assyria, probably named after Shem's son, Asher. Traveling or invading and conquering along the river for around 275 miles, Nimrod ultimately started four more cities, Nineveh, 
Rehoboth Ir, Kala, and Rezin. Of these, Nineveh is the most famous today. Its ruins are found near the modern city of Mosul in Iraq. After Nimrod founded it, Nineveh later became a major city in the Assyrian Empire, with Assyrians even ruling over Babylon for a while. During that time, one of the Assyrian kings, named Ashurbanipal, put together an extensive library. And it was in the ruins of Ashurbanipal's library in Nineveh that scholars found many of the tablets telling us so much of what we know today about Babylonian and Sumerian legends. Nimrod went at least as far as Nineveh. The rest of Nimrod's family, though, kept going. Nimrod's grandfather Ham had at least four sons, Canaan, Cush, Mizraim, and Put. And if you go on west from Nineveh, you get to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and the land settled by Canaan and his kids. And among Canaan's kids are a variety of tribes that are famous in ancient history. Let's start with Heth. His children may have become the Hittites, an empire that controlled what is today modern Turkey and lasted for over a thousand years. Next, there are the Amorites. They lived inland, and their name might mean mountaineer, though Babylonian inscriptions call the coast of the Mediterranean the land of the Amorites. In Egyptian paintings, Amorites are depicted with light skin, beards, and blue eyes. Another tribe, the Jebusites, settled away from the coast. This was a small group, but the city they built, Jebus, would later become famous when it was renamed Jerusalem. The Hamathites were another of Canaan's descendants. They're less well-known, but besides coming up in Genesis, they're also mentioned in Egyptian and Assyrian records. In fact, their hometown, Hama, in Syria on the Orontes River, it still exists today. Canaan had other less famous descendants too, such as the Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, and Zemurites, who left less of a mark on history. But then there's the people who became sailors. The Arvidites are one example. They lived in a city on an island today known as Ruad. They come up often in writings we have from Babylon and Egypt, and the Assyrians even record a story of one Assyrian emperor who went aboard an Arvidite ship for a whale hunting expedition. Finally, last but not least, there's Sidon, Canaan's oldest son. The city of Sidon, named after him, still exists today between Tyre and Beirut along the coast of Lebanon. Sidonians and other Canaanites who were known for their ability to sail also became famous for something else, and it started with a few species of mollusk who live along the Mediterranean shoreline and secrete an unusual liquid. Somehow, the Canaanites learned that if they collected this liquid and exposed it to sunlight, it developed into a purple dye. This was Tyrian purple, named after the city of Tyre. It took 12,000 of these snails to make just one gram of dye. That rarity made it expensive, and that expense made it the color of kings. Hundreds of years later in Rome, there were rules about just who could wear the color purple and how much of it they could wear. Purple became the color of power and authority, and the Canaanites controlled the supply of it to such an extent that the Greek name for the Canaanites was simply red purple, or in Greek, Phoenician. These Phoenician sailors originally lived on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean, but they didn't stay there. They eventually sent out colonies to settle elsewhere, including a colony that landed on the coast of North Africa and founded the city of Carthage, a name that means new town. 
Many years later, Carthage would come to control an empire. But even then, if you looked at their coins, the Carthaginians still called themselves Canaanites. The Carthaginians remembered where their ancestors came from, and the Canaanites did too. They remembered that their original forefather was named Cana or Canas, and that in olden times, they had migrated from somewhere near the Persian Gulf, exactly as you'd expect if, as Genesis says, they were one of many tribes leaving Babel. Other details were written down by Philo of Byblos. Philo was a Phoenician historian who lived about 100 AD, and in his record of the gods and their descendants, he makes the same suggestion as Euhemerus and claims the Canaanite gods were once regular people. One scholar noted several parallels between the stories Philo describes and the history in Genesis. Philo, for instance, mentions the discovery of the use of food found on trees, while Genesis describes Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. Philo says that it was the third generation of people who began to worship the sun during droughts, and Genesis says it was during the third generation of people that men, quote, began to call on the name of the Lord, end quote. Philo talks of a time when giants were born, and Genesis describes giants and, quote, men of renown, end quote. In addition, Philo tells the story of two brothers with different occupations. One built things out of plants, while the other wore animal skins. The brother who used plants fought with the one who used animal skins for clothing, following the pattern in Genesis of Cain the gardener killing Abel the shepherd. In Philo's story, after the fight, the one who built things from plants went on to have descendants who developed hunting and fishing and metalworking and various tools, details that make a reasonable match with the genealogy in Genesis of Cain's descendants, including Jabal, who kept livestock, and Tubal-Cain, who worked with bronze and iron. There's also lots of details in Philo's stories that don't align between what he says and the history you find in Genesis. The links are far from perfect, with lots of extra people and only rough parallels. And scholars debate whether he's giving reliable history or a history that was influenced by the Greek and Roman culture he lived in. But if what he's recording is true, you can see clues of a dim memory of the same stories you find in Genesis. Beyond what Philo wrote, though, we don't have many sources on Canaanite legends. There are stories of the Canaanite god Baal fighting Yam, the monster of the sea, which sounds like it could be related to the Babylonian legend of Marduk fighting Tiamat, the god of saltwater and chaos, but no other history that parallels what you find in Genesis. For that, we'll have to follow Ham's other sons, because while Canaan stopped and settled along the Mediterranean coast, his brothers kept moving. Cush was the third of Ham's sons, and he and his kids headed south, until... From the best we can tell, he settled in what is today Ethiopia, and in Josephus' time, people still called the Ethiopians Cushites. Meanwhile, Cush's kids, Seba, Havila, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca, and Cush's grandsons, Sheba and Dedan, they all found places to live in the Arabian Peninsula, in and around modern Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and Oman. And they divided the region between their different tribes, though there's debate about who settled where. At first glance, this is an unusual choice. If most of the world was empty, and you could pick wherever you wanted to settle, the Arabian Peninsula isn't the most hospitable place. Arabia contains the second largest desert on Earth, behind only the Sahara. 
If you went there today, temperatures might reach 130 degrees Fahrenheit. In addition, Saudi Arabia, who controls around 80% of the peninsula, is the largest country in the world without a river. Combine that with sandstorms hundreds of miles wide that darken the skies and take most of a day to blow through, and you have to wonder why, with the whole world before them, Cush's kids would settle there. But back then, Arabia wasn't necessarily a desert. We don't know what the environment was like right after the flood, but we do have clues. In the 1990s, satellite images of Arabia showed the marks of an ancient river which used to flow from the mountains on the west of the peninsula all the way to the Persian Gulf, over 500 miles away. The river delta once covered a good portion of modern Kuwait. In southern Arabia, modern Yemen, there are also the ruins of a dam that once stood over 40 feet high and stretched more than one and a half times the length of the Hoover Dam that today blocks the Colorado River in the southwestern United States. For over a thousand years, this dam in Yemen held back a reservoir, which allowed them to irrigate the land around Marib in the Kingdom of Sheba, creating a 25-square-mile oasis. Even further south on the peninsula, they grew spices, myrrh and frankincense, for trade. And in the Roman era, the region was known as Arabia Felix, or Happy Arabia. In short, Arabia might have been a nicer place to settle when Cush's kids found it. Unfortunately, like Canaan, we don't have many clues about their history. For that, we have to look to Cush's brothers, Put and Mizraim. These are the last two sons of Ham that Genesis mentions, and they went west rather than south. As they traveled and followed the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, they came to a well-watered valley with a river flowing from the south to the north. Put continued on west across North Africa, but Mizraim, he stopped and established perhaps the most famous new home. He settled by the Nile River. Today, and for a long time, we've called the country Mizraim started Egypt, but Egypt isn't really its name. If you read Genesis in the original Hebrew, it doesn't say Egypt, it says one form or another of the name Mizraim. And historically, the Assyrians called Egypt that too, using the word Musur. Well, as far back as 3,500 years ago, the people living in Canaan called it Misri. The Assyrians, Babylonians, and Hebrews all referred to Egypt with Mizraim, or something similar, probably because they remembered who first settled there. The Egyptians themselves, though, didn't use that word. Instead, they called their country Kemi, meaning black land. It might refer to the dark soil along the shores of the Nile River, or Kemi could refer to Ham, their forefather. Today, though, modern Egyptians refer to their country by its Arabic name, Miser. The name Egypt came from Greek speakers, who took their name for the city of Memphis, Aiguptos, and used it to refer to the entire country. Mizraim settled along the Nile, and his kids did too. Genesis lists quite a few who lived in various places around Egypt, including the Anamim, the Ludim, and the Lahabim, who may have lived to the west of modern Egypt. The Ludim and Lahabim may be where we get the name of the modern country of Libya. There were also the Naphtuhim, who probably lived in the Nile Delta, and the Pathrusim, who lived in the southern part of the country. Most of these tribes don't show up much in history, 
and Josephus suggests that it was due to a war Egypt fought long ago, where it defeated or destroyed seven of them. There is at least one descendant who does make it into history, though. Genesis tells of the Kesluhim, and their descendants or relatives, the Kaphtorim and the Philistim, or Philistines. The Philistines probably originally lived in northern Egypt, though they eventually emigrated to Canaanite territory along the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, the name Philistine might come from an Ethiopian word meaning emigrate, and the land they emigrated to became so well known as the land of the Philistines that the Greeks named the region after them and called it Palestine, the name we still use today. Even the Philistines, though, for all their impact on history, don't compare to Egypt itself. Egypt is a treasure trove of artifacts, from monuments and temples to tombs and bits of papyrus preserved in the dry sand. It holds all kinds of stories. But until the 1800s, those stories were hidden in unreadable hieroglyphics. It took the discovery of the Rosetta Stone at the end of the 1700s for scholars to begin to figure it out. But just like the cuneiform symbols I talked about earlier, understanding hieroglyphics wasn't easy. Like I said before, in English we use a phonetic alphabet. A letter represents a sound. Combine those sounds in different ways to get different words with different meanings. In hieroglyphics, it's not that way. A symbol might be a pictogram, a picture of an object. But that same picture might also be phonetic. As an English example, you could put together a picture of a ball and a line of ants to write the word ball ants or balance. This ambiguity opens up some room for confusion, so the Egyptians also had symbols called determinatives that came after the hieroglyphics to help you narrow down what it might mean. As you can imagine, this makes translating hieroglyphics a challenge. But if confusing writing makes you wonder just how clever the Egyptians really were, look no further than the engineering they figured out. The Egyptians designed simple cranes with counterweights to help lift water for irrigating crops. The design was valuable enough that you still find people using it in some places today. They carved lines on cliffs or in the walls of pits connected to the Nile so they could track the water level of the river. They had tools, including gold and copper razor blades, they figured out how to fashion bronze and copper into tubes and use them with an abrasive powder to drill through granite. And then there's the pyramids, the only ancient wonder of the world still standing. To build the largest of them, the Egyptians had to collect 2.3 million blocks and stack them nearly 500 feet high. And if you look back through Egyptian history, you find older pyramids, too. Pyramids with step sides a lot like the stepped-sided ziggurats you find by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And it makes me wonder if these Egyptians who built the first pyramids were remembering that tower back in Babel that was never finished. But it wasn't just what the Egyptians built that might tell us about their connection to the past. They also have stories. Egypt doesn't have just one mythology, but a lot of different ones, and they shifted over time. Even so, there are interesting little coincidences here and there. In one account, the world began covered in water. In another, Ta, a creator god, brought the other gods into existence by speaking. You get glimpses of flood memories, too. In one place, an Egyptian god refers to all the evil and rebellion that people have done 
and threatens to destroy the world and turn it back into a planet covered in water, like it was in the beginning. Then there's one story of Ra, the sun god. He's getting old and hears of people plotting against him, so he sends another god to destroy the conspirators. But after a massacre, Ra changes his mind and chooses to spare the rest of mankind before going away into the sky, a place shown as a heavenly cow, whose title means Great Flood. One of the gods Ra leaves behind is Thoth, a god who invented writing and languages, and who is recorded in one story as putting up columns with messages on them after a flood, records that were later written into a book. Later on, Plato, the Greek philosopher, recorded that the Egyptians believed that when the gods wanted to cleanse the earth, they would send a flood, and people had to flee to the top of the mountains to survive it, suggesting they recalled several floods. In one place or another, these references to a flood come up, and the people who survived the flood might come up too, because while there were various subsets of gods in Egyptian mythology, there's one group that's especially interesting. In one city of Egypt, a group of eight gods was worshipped. It was made up of four male gods and their four female counterparts. And the names of the male gods mean something similar to the names of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In addition, these gods are shown helping another god support the sky to keep it from collapsing back into the waters below. I started this episode talking about Euhemerus and his suggestion that some of the gods people in his day worshipped were really just memories of impressive humans. But Euhemerus wasn't the first person to offer this idea. A while earlier, Hecteus of Abdera mentioned a similar concept, that some of the Egyptian gods, and others besides, had once been humans, but achieved immortality because of the good things they did for mankind. I'll admit that this idea of humans being remembered as gods is in some ways understandable. People who lived before and during the Flood lived such long lives, it wouldn't be hard to remember them as immortal. In a time when people were first building settlements in the New World, stories from before the Flood of Tubal-Cain's inventiveness with bronze and iron might be thought of as superhuman genius. And as the stories were handed down, you can see how the true details might get lost with more fantastic adventures appearing with each retelling, until you have the legends and mythology we find today. But there's a challenge here. How did these changes happen so fast? Some of the timelines recorded by the ancient Babylonians and Egyptians don't leave a lot of room for stories to be handed down generation to generation and embellished. The timeline in the Bible suggests that the flood would have happened about 2348 BC, the building of the Tower of Babel isn't as specific, but maybe a hundred or so years later. Compare those dates with ones you can find in Babylon and Egypt. The Babylonians were astronomers, and they kept records of their observations going all the way back to when Babylon was founded. When Alexander the Great conquered Babylon in 331 BC, he gathered those records up and sent them back to Greece, to Aristotle, one of the teachers who had tutored him before he became king. The records say that Babylon was founded in 2234 BC, or 114 years after the flood recorded in Genesis. Turning to the Egyptians, 
A chronicle written in the Middle Ages claims that Egypt lasted for 1,663 years, between when it was founded and when it was conquered by the Persians. Since Egypt was conquered in 525 BC, that timeline claims it would have been founded in 2188 BC, about 46 years after Babylon and 160 years after the flood. These dates match surprisingly well with Genesis, but that agreement is also the challenge. If Babylon and Egypt started so soon, started when Noah and Shem were still alive, how did their history shift from stories of real people to the legends and mythology of gods so quickly? There's some room for stories to change by accident, as one generation passes them on to the next, and that probably explains part of it, especially since the handoff would have gotten harder after the languages were confused at Babel. But I wonder if that's only part of the story. For all of the changes that happened by accident, I wonder if sometimes the leader of one group or another changed history on purpose. Maybe they wanted to cement their hold on power. Maybe they wanted to make a legacy for themselves by claiming some great achievement or ability. Maybe they wanted to be seen as more than human, so they convinced people to think of them as gods. We know the pharaohs of Egypt did it. Maybe other civilizations did too. Perhaps, like Gilgamesh, they all wanted immortality. If so, they were falling for the same lie Eve believed in the Garden of Eden, when Satan told her that she wouldn't die. But there's another motive too. Whether it was Nimrod in Babylon and Nineveh, or the first settlers in Canaan and Egypt, maybe they hoped that by being remembered as a god, they could convince people to forget the real god, the god who had just confused their languages and destroyed their plans for a city and a tower. So maybe that was the plan. Rather than wait for lots of time to pass and hope history changed by accident, maybe they started changing history on purpose. One author notes that the Egyptians didn't necessarily show things as they were, but instead as they wanted them to be. After the Tower of Babel, Ham's kids lived in Babylon and Assyria in Mesopotamia. They settled along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the land of Canaan. They traveled to the far reaches of the Arabian Peninsula or went on to the Nile and North Africa. But regardless of where they went, in trying to displace God, even those who left Babylon behind brought Babel's confusion along with them. There are parallels between the history in Genesis and the stories you find in Babylon or Canaan or Egypt, but all those places are within a few hundred miles of where Genesis was written, and if you see parallels, you could always argue that those parts of their mythology were copied from Genesis, or if you want, that Genesis was copied from them. But what about the other stories? Stories that come from further away. What about the stories you find from Japheth's kids? I started this episode talking about Euhemerus and the Greek gods, but the details of the stories from Greece and from Japheth's other kids who traveled to Scandinavia, Myanmar, New Zealand, and beyond, the stories those grandfathers of history passed down, will have to wait for next time. Until then, if you're a fan of details, you can find lots more in the show notes to this episode, as well as links for further reading at widerbible.com. 
The website also has a place for asking questions and a page where you can subscribe if you want to know when something new comes out. I'm Adam Schall. Thanks for listening.